Hello everybody and welcome to another seafaring shanty singing episode of Pottywood. I am one of your captains, Steve Hester, and with me as always is... A whale of a tale to tell you, lads. That would be me, Andrew Roger Carson, joining you here from the storm-swept seas of Withenshaw. And you didn't go for either Roger the Cabin Boy or Seaman Staines. I must applaud you for that. Yeah, that's just too juvenile. I know. Uh, Well, we're back again, episode 17. And what an episode this is going to be. Yes, an episode so monumental that we don't even have a tagline because we don't think any movies have actually reached number 17. But here we are. James Bond. Yeah, all right. But I kind of class them as different because every time they change an actor, I see it as just a... A rebooted thing. I don't class it as one entire story structure. Just like the X-Men. Just like the X-Men, exactly. (laughs) Uh, This is going to be a two-part episode, can you believe that? But speaking of uh, sea shanties and uh, perilous weather and danger at every curve, what's in the box last week? was Master and Commander The Far Side of the World, which Steve watched for the first time last night, we hope. Indeed, I did. Because uh, we record these episodes on a Tuesday, we settled down on a Monday night, uh, got ourselves nice and comfy in front of the TV and watched Russell Crowe with a ponytail. Now, this is one of those movies which I remember seeing on the posters and on TV when it first came out and just kind of, eh, could be good, but I never really got around to watching it. And I've got to say, I did enjoy it. One thing that I did enjoy more than everything else is how simple the storyline is and how clear the objectives is of the story going straight into it, right from the very off. There is a ship and the crew of the HMS Surprise led by Russell Crowe. Uh, they have to track it down. Now, the ship is a as known as a phantom ship called the Archon, which is a French ship in this movie, but in the original stories, it was a United States ship, having uh, sailed out of Boston. Now, like I said, these are based on original stories by a guy called Patrick O'Brien, and they're set in the kind of same universe as the Hornblower series. But things were changed so that it was earlier than when the story was originally set, so that they could have England at war with France, as opposed to England being at war with the US. There are a few mentions to this in the movie earlier on. Two of the crewmen come to the captain and say that uh, one of their wives' sister, I think it was, was married to a guy who was building the ship in Boston. So there's a few references to that. And from what I can gather, there's references to the other books as they're going through. But you've got actually a rather interesting cast. You've got Russell Crowe as the captain. You've got Paul Bettany as Dr. Stephen. Beautiful British name. Then, but James Darcy. And then James Darcy. If you haven't already picked up on that, then you're not really a fan of the MCU because both of those people play Jarvis in the MCU. You've Very got good. Uh, Paul Bettany played Jarvis, well, the voice of Jarvis when Ima first started out and then obviously became Vision. And James Darcy played Edwin Jarvis, who was um, Howard Stark's butler slash personal assistant slash aide in the Agent Carter TV series and also showed up in Endgame. So you've got two Javai, Javai, let's call it Javai, for the price of one. Um, You've also got Billy Boyd from Lord of the Rings, who was uh, Pippin in there as the Hellsman. I forgot he was in it. Yeah? 
Oh, as soon as I saw him within the first few minutes, I went, ah, it's Pippin! Um, <laughs> I bet he gets that on the street everywhere he, he goes. He probably does, but I think he's really happy about it all. Because I know that him and Dominate Monaghan are two really, really close friends, so they're very happy about it. Yeah, no one on the streets of Ireland is pointing to him and saying, hey, it's Seed of Chucky! <laughs> no. No, they're not doing that. It's like, hey, you're a hobbit! Except in an Irish accent. Um, uh, you've also got David Threlfall, who, uh, for people that don't know him abroad, was the lead in the British version of Shameless, Frank Gallagher. Um, Very true. Who, who I met once... Because I was doing a play with some of the guys who were in Shameless, and I came down to the set and they were filming some episodes. And he seemed like a really, really cool guy. So, yeah, yeah totally unrecognizable to the fact that I actually watched this again last night uh, myself because I thought, you know what, I haven't seen it in a while. I'm, I'm going to watch it, and it didn't actually occur to me that that is Frank from Shameless. <laughs> In my head, looking at his beard and everything and seeing how scruffy he is in the show, I can almost imagine this being a distant ancestor. (laughs) (laughs) So this time on board a ship, polishing silver, and then came to a Manchester housing estate and started stealing it. Yes, that family gene pool got quite shallow. (laughs) Didn't it just? (laughs) Uh, The movie is resplendent in a couple of really good action scenes. Noticeably, it highlights one of the main problems with The Last Jedi, and yeah, I am crowbarring The Last Jedi in this. For God's sake, Steve. Insofar as a chase between one vessel and another of more or less equal speed only can work if it exists in a 2D space. Okay. All right, yeah, yeah. All right, yeah. I'll, gi- I'll give you that. I'll give you that. Okay, but no, there's some very, very good action set pieces. A cracking battle, actually, at the end, where, spoiler, the surprise manages to catch up with the Archon, uh, which coincidentally is named after the ferryman of the River Styx in, um, right. in yes, ancient mythology. Yes, that is a fact. Yep. And it's one of those moments where lots of stuff is going on. It's very chaotic. But in all credit to Peter Weir and all credit to him throughout the entirety of the movie, even when things are going nuts, it's still really easy to follow what the hell is going on. Yes. You, know, you compare that to something like the fighting that's in Batman Begins, and you don't know who's throwing a punch or whatever. But they went really deep with a lot of the nautical terminology, and some of it I didn't even know, some of it I did. Like, uh, several times the captain cries out, hard a larboard. Not starboard, larboard. And I didn't know at the time, did have to look this up on Google, but it turns out that larboard was the original name for the side of the ship where they would draw up against a key and then load. So it was the loading side of the ship and so as time went on i think it said by about according to google anyway by about 1844 it was replaced by port which i suppose as well as that if you're shouting out orders in the middle of a storm that could very easily uh, get rid of some unfortunate misunderstandings but there was there was a few nice little touches as well from what i can gather it turns out that the cast had their own quarters where they were able to build up a rapport as obviously they would do if they're actual characters at sea. They had their own little uh, officer's quarters called the Monkey Club, where they were able to sit back and relax and mix. Uh, in terms of performances, because I haven't really touched on this, in terms of performances, I think it's it's fairly it's fairly perfunctory. There's nothing really that stands out. Everyone just kind of is. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think Russell Crowe spends a lot of the film smirking, but then again, his character is supposed to be a bit cocky and what have you 
visually, I think it's very impressive. I think it's a really good-looking film with some flawless miniature work done by Weta Workshop, which will be hard-pressed to tell the difference between that and the actual footies that they've got of the ships. Like I said, lots of attention done to the time period setting, and uh, yeah, I, I, I would fully recommend this here movie. Well, I'm pleased that you like it because it is a fantastic movie. Peter Weir is a fantastic director who really does direct talent incredibly well and he's very specific you know in previous movie he did called gallipoli uh which starred a very young mel gibson uh he he goes a lot into historical fact to present a very authentic movie and he also directed witness as well with harrison ford that is a cracker yeah no no planes in that movie because the amish don't believe in them nope so with that it took three studios to make this movie uh actually according to this it took Ooh, who's the silent one? I know Miramax is one. Yep. Fox is one. Yep, because they're they're leading. Was one. Yeah. Uh, Oh, let's see if I can get the others. I know it was them two. Yeah. I was going to say DreamWorks. It wasn't DreamWorks. No, it wasn't DreamWorks. No. It was Universal. (laughs) Universal, yes. They're the third credited. And it also mentions Goldwyn. Not MCM. Samuel Goldwyn. But yeah, Samuel Goldwyn Jr. Oh, hey. Cool. So they they must be the silent fourth. They pretty much are. They're listed down, I think, just as an indie uh, contributor to it, as opposed to an actual studio studio. But they were part of the big four. And yeah, it's really unusual to see multiple studios coming together to make one great big film like that. Now, if all of them owned superheroes, that would never happen. No, not at all. They'd be guarding that like a fat man guards a McDonald's. <laughs> if I got to cut this laughing out. <laughs> no, hell no, that's staying in. Uh, oh. Well, speaking of eating, there is a couple of things I would like to bring up. Uh, they do visit the Galapagos Islands, uh, and one of them makes a reference to tortoises making good eating, and this is actually true. And it took, I think it was near enough about 50 to 70 years for uh, specimens of the giant tortoises which exist on the Galapagos Islands to reach England because they would get eaten because they were so apparently delicious that none of them would last the trip back because everyone would just go, oh, just give us a bit more of that fried tortoise. Ooh. <laughs> it's too delicious. Yes. Oh, terrible. Well, there was a nice uh, twist at the end of the movie as well, which we won't spoil for no. the people uh, who haven't seen it or are probably just trying to catch up uh, with uh, what's in the box. And I know some people are. I wonder if Neil has actually caught up with the last three weeks. I don't know. Why has he been on holiday? Uh, no, he's, he's been really busy. He's been really busy. There's so, no uh, excuse, Neil. Uh, I think he's kind of been watching them out of order as well, just to be a renegade. <laughs> We're back to renegade again. Total outlaw, that guy. I know. Tell you. <laughs> uh, well, I guess we've got just enough time to fill in some anniversaries. Watch them again, all of the time, or oh, we get them on Prime for free. But we only know how old they are when we learn their anniversary. My name's Jim, but people call me Jim. Well, it's funny enough that you should actually use a Blazing Saddles reference. Oh, no, you're kidding me. Oh, well, this was the perfect segue, <laughs> because... 
<laughs> say right absolute absolute uh, let's there's full declaration here i have no idea what the anniversaries are before andy reads them out to me so if blazing saddles is one of them <laughs> no it's oh, not but it's a it. mel brooks connection okay no we'll go for that one 35 years ago brooks films released the fly they did the fly Brooks Films did, yes, um, uh, starring Jeff Goldblum, directed by David Cronenberg. Uh, this was a movie that was kind of hard to get greenlit until oh, Mel Brooks kind of stepped in with Brooks Films uh, to actually produce this movie. And what a movie it is. It is absolutely amazing. And totally disgusting. And totally disgusting. I remember, uh, I think it was my mother turned it off after the incident with, was it the cat? Mm. <laughs> which I think turned off quite a lot of people. Yeah. But but it stood the test of time to become, you know, a really amazing uh, movie. And I think it was one of the first movies, apart from The Dead Zone, of course, that really catapulted David Cronenberg uh, into the consciousness of worldwide filmmakers. Yeah, because it was definitely more appreciated than some of the stuff like Videodrome or... or uh, uh... Or even Scanners, for that matter. I think Scanners was before this, I think. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, when we were doing the thing, I, b- I believe um, video... I think it goes The Dead Zone, then Scanners, mm-hmm. then then Videodrome, and then it, and then it was The Fly, and, uh, and then he went on to do movies like Dead Ringers and etc. And, and really forged a great career. And this was really a, a major point for Jeff Goldblum as well. You know, this was him stepping into a, a major, you know, Hollywood leading man role, mm. and he did absolutely amazing with it. Yeah, because he think he'd done other stuff like uh, the Tall Guy, but I think that came after. That was um, nineteen eighty nine, right? So yeah, that was definitely after that. The Fly is a career highlight for him. It's a movie that really made him, and uh, everyone remembers The Fly and his performance in it. But things that we might not want to remember. 20 years ago, Steve, Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes was released. Yeah, well, because we all touched on this last week, didn't we? Well, it was the anniversary of... Yeah, the anniversary of Rise of the Planet of the Apes was last week. So, 10 years prior to that, Planet of the Apes was released around the same time. So, yeah, when was that? That was about 2001? Well, obviously, yeah. Yeah? If it's 20 years. Uh, (laughs) Oh, shit your face. Do your math, Steve. Um, yeah, Planet of the Apes, uh, Tim Burton. And this was uh, a movie everyone was really excited about. And then the movie started. Yes. And uh, it, it was a very off-kilter, I guess you would say. Uh, Mark Wahlberg was kind of in that uh, Charlton Heston role. Mm-hmm. I think Mark Wahlberg is suited to a, a definite kind of Boston style. Yeah, wicked. Whereas Charlton Heston is, is Charlton Heston is Moses. Yeah, I mean, it had an amazing cast in it because you had, you had Tim Roth, you had Michael Clark Duncan, it had uh, Helena Bonham Carter, and Charlton Heston played um, one of the older apes in it. But enough about the cast. The actual movie itself was, I guess, kind of a radical departure, as you'd kind of expect from a Tim Burton movie. I think there was a little bit of controversy about the the actual ending, though, uh, particularly between him and Kevin Smith. Oh, yes. Yes, Yes. because Smith said that his ending of Mark Wahlberg arriving back and being at the foot of the Lincoln Memorial and looking up and seeing an ape Lincoln, not an Abe Lincoln, an ape Lincoln, 
it's exactly the same as what Kevin Smith had written in a comic book, which I think was I think it was a Jay and Silent Bob one, which ultimately carried most of the same yes. plot points as uh, Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. So I think there was some issues going on with that, with Tim Burton saying, "Oh, I'd never read a comic book," and yet Tim Burton was the one that was trying to get Batman Forever, uh, not Batman Forever, the Superman Forever, or whatever it was called, the one with uh, Nicolas Cage off the ground years ago. Yes, and it's not like he's ever directed a Batman movie. No. I don't know what the fallout was from that in the end, but uh, but yeah, I don't think those two ever worked together again. No, I don't think they did. But I know that um, Kevin Smith did do a little bit of a rib in, I think it was Jane Silent Bob Strike Back. They did a bit of a Planet of the Apes uh, yeah. joke in there. We will not be the ones to spank the monkey. The monkey will spank <laughs> us. That's the one. Yeah, that's the one. What happened to Kevin Smith? He used to be great. I reckon he still can be great. I just think he needs to surround himself with better people. Yeah, possibly. Um, okay. Can you believe, Steve? Mm-hmm. 15 years ago, Snakes on a Plane was released. Born from a poster and catapulted <laughs> oh, yeah. into the world. Oh, now that is a movie that should have been made in the 80s. It is so schlocky and B-movie-esque, but it it's saved by Samuel L. Jackson and just the sheer absurdity of the whole premise. That singular line, which will get beeped out, but I've had it with these motherfucking snakes on this motherfucking plane, is just being parodied every... Okay, gonna get onto video games again. There's <laughs> a brilliant line in Lego Marvel superheroes because your main kind of base of operations is the helicarrier. And you've, right. got, you've got little missions, and obviously this is a kid-friendly game, and you go downstairs and there's uh, a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent who's trying to find... It says, oh, Director Fury says that he wants all these gosh-darn snakes off this gosh-darn helicarrier. He may have been paraphrasing a bit there. And <laughs> that made me laugh. But yeah, it's an absurd film. Absolutely absurd, but brilliant with it. But it's the movie that knows how absurd it is and just goes for it. And, you know, it's a kind of film... <laughs> Funnily enough that you'd expect something like The Asylum to release. And then they did. (laughs) They released Snakes on a Train. Uh, Well, at least they know where they're getting their ideas from. Yes, don't they just? (laughs) And no, I've, I've, I've not seen it. There's times where I will venture into the Asylum movies when they have movies like Transmorphers or, uh, the day the Earth stopped. <laughs> that's not right. even. That's I'm, not even subtle. No, no. Right. I have to make a plea right here, right now. This isn't aimed at the asylum. This is aimed at everybody who goes into the local supermarket, sees these on a shelf somewhere, or is flicking through Netflix or Amazon Prime or whatever. Stop watching them, please. We don't care how stoned you are. Just stop doing it. They're fucking dreadful. No, they're dreadful, but in defense of the filmmakers and stuff like that, you know, it's it's a payday, it's a chance to work, and, uh, you know, you, you discover all of these forgotten stars. Elizabeth J. Carlyle was in one, wasn't she? Super Gator! Super Gator! <laughs> with, uh, with, uh, and she will always refer to as the woman from Top Gun, Kelly McGinnis. She was Academy Award nominated, and now she's just the one that was in Top Gun. <laughs> oh, oh God. God, that's so so bad. But um, yeah, uh, the Asylum. I always had this kind of guilty pleasure by these absolute idiots 
who used to come into a video store that I, I was in, honestly believing or getting for their kids what they thought was um, Transformers. Or, Ridiculous. And it was really Transmorphers or The Da Vinci Code, but it's called The Da Vinci Treasure. <laughs> <laughs> and just knowing how much their kids must have hated their parents when they got home. Yeah. Ten years ago this week, mm-hmm. the in-betweeners either graced our screen or disgraced our screen, mm. depending on if you like them or not. I've seen I've seen a number of the TV episodes. Um, not bad. They've got the moments that can be kind of cringy, but I suppose that's the point. It's echoing the cringiness that teenage boys in particular go through growing up. I haven't actually seen the films, so can't comment. Sorry. It basically follows the tried and trusted English method of let's just translate our half-hour comedy series that people actually like and make a movie out of it. They've done it since On the Buses. Yeah. They're still doing it now with stuff like Mrs. Brown's Boys, the movie. And funnily enough, it's never the series that you really want. I would have killed for a Father Ted movie. Oh, yeah, that would have been brilliant. They're trapped on the mainland or something, you know. Oh, if we had a Young Ones movie, that would have been brilliant. We got a bottom movie, kind of, in Guest House parody, so. Yes. Which, you know, it's, it's fun for what it is. That still has one of my favourite jokes, which is the Basque Separatist Mice joke. I, I piss myself every time I see that one. Because the timing on it is perfect. I still love the Phoebe. <laughs> <laughs> right, we just, we've just yeah. said that this movie's all right and we're both pissing ourselves at the jokes. <laughs> you know, that, that just proves that that does its job. Yeah. Um, the Inbetweeners for me, I think it just came a bit too... Uh, late for my style of comedy. I mean, when I was watching it, I was like, oh, I mean, there's some parts of it are funny, but realistically, it, it's it's not my kind of brand of no. comedy, I guess. I think I was just a bit too old to be watching stuff about, you know, desperate teenagers trying to get laid. It was basically an American pie for the British. Yeah, it, it did its job, really. It was, yeah. it was all right. But, you know, it shifted a lot of money and then it released a, a totally... Unwanted sequel in the Inbetweeners too. Yeah. Uh, well, after the Inbetweeners had kind of run their course, I guess. And also harking back to last week, the last of our anniversaries, Steve, for this week, Terminator Two: Judgment Day was released thirty years ago. Now, this is a movie that I cannot say enough good things about. It's incredible. It is by far and away one of the best sequels ever made. And like you said last week, it shouldn't work, but it does, and it works so well. And still at the moment, until Avatar 2 is released, it is, I believe, the only time that James Cameron has done a sequel. Aliens. Well, technically, yeah, though, that he was... Didn't, no, he didn't do Alien. That's true, but it was a sequel, though. And Piranha 2. <laughs> yes, but he was not involved in the first one. And he should That's have been true. for Piranha, because the original was great. But uh, directed by Joe Dante. Uh, much respect, Joe. Yeah. Um, but Piranha 2 is, oh, yeah, flying Piranha. He, he must have needed that money. Did he write it or direct it? I think he just directed it, I think. He directed it. Oh, my God. I think in that case, he was a director for hire, really. He that was a paycheck. Because he was still homeless living in his car when he had the Terminator deal took off. So Piranha 2 obviously mustn't have paid pretty well. No. 
thank heaven the Terminator deal did did take off because then we wouldn't have had Aliens, we wouldn't have had the Terminator Two, we wouldn't have had the Abyss, we wouldn't have had True Lies, Titanic, Dancers with Smurfs, we wouldn't have had any of it, and we wouldn't have had Terminator Three, Genesis, and Dawn of Fate. Mm, okay, so it's not all good. Yeah, I went to see this at the cinemas, and uh, I'd say I only saw about twenty minutes of fresh footage from the entire movie because it was shown in every single trailer or making of or on every single show like film 92 and things like that yeah the point where there was no real surprises left in it you could have patched it together couldn't you you could have i reckon you could have saved yourself some money by just recording all of these sections and then splicing the movie together (laughs) however you want to do tarantino style he's already died but now we're going to find out how (laughs) (laughs) yeah Maybe just maybe just lift some scenes out of your old copy of Cyborg Cop that your mum bought for you, thinking it was Terminator Two. Yeah. Oh dear. <laughs> uh, but yes, Terminator Two, uh, very deserving. Uh, I've gone into the Library of Congress now. I believe it has. I think so. It's a really important and well-respected film. Yes, uh, it had that Guns and Roses song that mm-hmm. went up against uh, Brian Adams' "Everything I Do, I Do for You." How many people needed to buy a copy of that f***ing single? I've never met a single person in my entire life who bought that single. I smell shenanigans. I reckon half of uh, Kevin Costner's Waterworld budget went on uh, Brian Adams' CDs (laughs) to keep his film in the public consciousness. (laughs) That's why Waterworld went over budget. He just went and bought loads of Brian Adams songs so people would still be seeing shots of Robin Hood on top of the pops for months. Oh, you didn't think we'd figure it out, Kevin. We know. Strangely, I do have a very vague memory that I may own a copy of that single. I have a very vague memory when you used to be co-host on the show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, anyway, oh, that's, that's, that's the anniversaries for this week, and I think it's time for uh, our long-awaited guest. Uh, we've so been waiting for this. So, uh, our guest this week bears one of the biggest names in Hollywood, where his family legacy was established in Hollywood in the 1940s uh, on such movies as Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the original black and white version, all the way to some of the biggest movies from United Artists, such as The Great Escape, Some Like It Hot, Magnificent Seven, West Side Story. We could go on and on. There are dozens more. The name Mirish started with Walter Mirish, who went on to produce around 99 movies, including those just mentioned, as well as the Oscar-winning In the Heat of the Night, Fiddler on the Roof, Thomas Crown Affair, and so many more. Today, Richard Mirish carries on the family legacy with his own successful producing career, with a number of big movies for bigger studios, from the recent Godzilla franchise, including this year's Godzilla vs. Kong, Alpha, Black Mass, My Spy, and the movie that shaped the 2000s, the matrix richards forged his own career working with such studios as warner brothers uh, legendary pictures sony joel silver productions and many more and today we swing the spotlight around on him as he joins us this morning from los angeles to discuss legacy his career and really how the industry has changed post-pandemic for the big hollywood movies richard good morning how is la good morning guys great to be here L.A. is uh, sunny and beautiful right now, so all good. We're not jealous in the slightest. 
because <laughs> we have rain. <laughs> but then again, you know this what? is Britain. We, should... we always have rain. We could use yeah. rain. We'd le- I'd like to swap with you. We've been in a drought situation for some time now, and we are actually desperate for rain. So, you know, we, we, we may be ordering some pints of rain from you guys, um, and uh, we certainly could use it. But great to be here. No, no, it, it's great to have you. Uh, Richard, it's going to be very hard to kind of keep control of the direction of this interview because your career is it's very extensive. It branches into so many areas. Uh, some I only just heard about yesterday as we emailed back and forth. Regardless, I want to start really by kind of going back to the Mirish company. Uh-huh. Uh, started by Walter Mirish, who uh-huh. is at this very moment in time the oldest living winner of an Academy Award. <laughs> you know, is that um, right? I just... mean, that do- that doesn't surprise me. He's turning a hundred in November. Actually, wow. Yeah, yeah. With uh, Olivia uh, de Havilland, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, who passed yeah. away last year. Mm. Uh, she was actually the oldest, and now at this moment of time, it's a nut statistic to start on. And believe me, it's going to get even more impressive from here on in. I think you mentioned the other day that, you know, Walter, his knowledge of filmmaking is still very much there, even at his age. It is. I saw Walter. I went to visit him with my dad a couple months ago. And, you know, sharp as attack, uh, I brought up a, a project that didn't even get made that John Frankenheimer was involved with as a director and. And he remembered specifics. Uh, this was in the mid-60s. So uh, pretty blown away by uh, his acumen at the, uh, still at this, at this point in time. I wish I had that much uh, uh, you know, re- recall memory. It was great to see him and ask, always ask him questions and get some knowledge. Well, Walter founded the Mirage Company in 1957 after working through pretty much every single facet of the production industry and being very hands-on. Is that is that about right? You know, the 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 Mirish Company was founded actually by my grandfather Harold and Walter and their brother Marvin. It was the three brothers who, in '57, started the Mirish Company, and they each had very unique skill set. You know, they were the Liam Neesons of their time. Um, and, and and at this time, forming an independent production company was unique. Uh, outside of the studio system, they forged a path of, of filmmaking that has been replicated ever since. So they were trailblazing at the time. And the key to their success, I think, was their relationships with filmmakers and the ability to cut through the bullshit and the red tape and and let uh, legendary filmmakers do their thing. The Mirish Company, I mean, it produced uh, 68 classic movies for United Artists alone. And that's that includes some of the most uh, immortal movies in cinematic history, which is The Magnificent Seven, Great Escape, Side Story. Uh, he obviously has mentioned Academy Award for In the Heat of the Night. And these are not just simple movies that were churned out. These were game-changing movies that have inspired a, a whole generation of filmmakers. Now, how did you, seeing this from such a, a young age growing up in the family, shape your love of the business? I wish I had the remake rights, I'll tell you what. Uh, um <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I their success happened at a very young age for me. I was born in 66, right in the height of their success. So for most of my early youth, 
you know, I was unaware of what they were doing. I uh, wasn't watching the pictures and I was a bit clueless, to be quite honest. I recall seeing a picture they did called the Hawaiians set up on a projector in a, in a just, you know, a simple screen in my aunt's house uh, when I was young. But I don't even think I knew that the family made it. So it wasn't until much later that I actually understood the legacy and watched the movies and thought it was really cool to see my name up on screen. Was there a certain point where you kind of realized, oh, wait, this is actually something special? I did. You know, as I got older, I was probably in high school, college when I really looked at the body of work. I had a really interesting experience when I was, I think, 18 or 19. There's a delicatessen in Beverly Hills called Nate Nows, which is home base for matzo ball soup and turkey sandwiches where I grew up. And I was in there with my grandmother and she said, oh, oh, there's a person over here I think uh, would like to meet you. And we walked over and I met this you know, gentleman, sort of a frail, old, balding man, and he stared at me. You know, he kind of looked me dead in the eye and and asked me to, to, to get closer to him. I went down and got kind of face-to-face with him, and he looked in my eyes, and he pointed, and he said, Papa. He went, Papa. And I turned to my grandmother, who was younger, uh, younger than this person, and I said, Papa, you keep saying Papa. And he said, yeah, he's referring to your grandfather, Harold Mirish. And and I had been told for some time that that we had the same eyes as as I do of my dad. And I turned to to my grandma and I said, who is that? She said, oh, that's Billy Wilder. And I went, oh, Billy Wilder. Oh, you know, I mean, so I was a little ignorant. And I mean, now, I mean, what I would give to sit down and talk with Billy Wilder for for an hour or any amount of time. And then, you know, in my early days in the industry, moving around, I would get from the old timers, are you related to? And, you know, that those kinds of questions. Mirish is a pretty unusual name. So when people who had been around had heard it, they would you know, ask me if I was part of the family. And and I heard it from across the board, you know, working on sets and in and post and different executives. So, you know, that's when I, probably in my early 20s, when I was starting to get some experience and, and move around, when, when I really got a truer understanding. And I would hear stories from other people, craftsmen and, and various other people. I, I started doing some digging on my own and got a real sense of the uh, of the family and the legacy. Well, with regards to yourself coming into the business, you came in starting as a PA, mm. many years getting your first producing role, and mm-hmm. that was the ABC movie Space Camp, which was <laughs> loved by many 80s kids. Uh, so that was your first film experience. Are there any lessons from that movie that shaped you moving forward? Oh, there are plenty of lessons. The first, the first lesson that got ingrained to me was, you know, that I was the bottom of the barrel. And I learned very quickly when I was told that as a PA, my first job was to get to the studio at 5.30 in the morning to open a gate for the makeup people who showed up at 5.42. I always remember on the call sheet, it was like <laughs> 5.42. But we were shooting on the layered studio lot, which is where they shot Gone with the Wind. 
And, you know, I'd pull up, nobody was there. I guess the studio, there wasn't enough parking on the studio for everybody. So they had a lot outside. And, and so I had to open the lot and I basically just sat there uh, until crew call, which was, I don't know, seven o'clock, seven fifteen. So I would open the gate and just and, and, and sit there. And I remember asking Harold Schneider, who was the producer at the time, why do I have to do this? Like, why can't the makeup guy just, you know, give him the key and let him open the gate? And he just, he gave me a look and said, because we told you to, you know, I mean, it was basically like, okay, I'm not going to, I'm not asking any more questions. I'm just going to do, you know, I mean, I'm going to do what I'm told. And, and then I had another uh, big run in with Harold. I mean, look, my job on that show was to stand outside the stage that they were shooting on, which, mind you, had a red light turning and they sounded a bell. But my job was to stand outside the door in case somebody didn't see the spinning red light or hear the bell (laughs) and stop people from, you know, going into the stage while they were shooting. And I had a headset and I would yell, rolling! You know, and and I'd wait and wait and wait and wait, and the bell would sound again, the red light would go off, and and I would say, cut! That was my, I mean, that was it. I did that for 12 hours a day. I mean, I was lucky when I could, you know, in between takes, kind of sneak in and see the set. So my, my first experience, most of it was outside of where they were shooting. It was only until they... They finished the portion of the shooting the shuttle sequence inside that, you know, I was doing a good enough job that the AD said, okay, okay, you know, we'll switch you up a little bit. You can come onto the set. But so I, I learned quickly to just shut up and do my job and, and look, learn and listen. And um, that value system um, and, and has kind of stayed with me. I don't shut up anymore, though. That's the difference. Like now, now <laughs> I now now I speak up. You, you know, you you have to you have to earn your earn your your stripes. But you, if you have something to say, you know, it better be worth saying. Well, also uh, in the eighties, you worked on. I guess it's kind of a cult film now, Less Than Zero, mm-hmm. uh, which starred uh, Jamie Gertz, uh, Robert Downey Jr. Uh, in a very kind of life imitating art role for Robert Downey Mm. Jr. at the time. Uh, And that's a movie that has, you know, it's kind of almost been forgotten in the shuffle to a smaller extent. But during that kind of late 80s period, I mean, that must have been uh, a blast. It was a movie coming out of kind of Brat Pack era. Mm. It was. I think I worked on that the summer before I graduated college. And so we shot nights mostly on the movie around L.A., And we were like a big traveling circus moving from location to location. There was no studio work done. Everything was practical. Uh, I mean, I remember we shot the pink party for about four nights up in uh, Beverly Hills, up up in the hills a bit there. And these, you know, the extras were all at my age. So... There I was, I was in shorts and a t-shirt and they were all dressed up and I had a broom in my hand. I remember I had a broom in my hand. I had to, you know, they were, they were like sprinkling snow and fairy dust. I remember my job was, you know, one of my jobs there was to, you know, after each take sweep up the set dressing that had dropped, you know, I mean, it was a blast to work on the picture. I'd read the book and I grew up in the area and, um, you know, one of my principal jobs on that picture 
was to drive Jamie to and from set. So I, I, that was a pretty good gig for me. You know, I mean, I got to hang with Jamie, who's who's still a friend and a family friend as well today. You know, again, it was it was a fun experience. I got to know Robert uh, Downey a bit, who I would later work with on The Judge. So, I mean, not bad for a summer gig, right? It, two summers before, I think I was I was working for uh, a, an aunt and uncle. They sold uh, furs, and I sat in a little warehouse and pushed uh, furs for jackets up and down the street in the in the in the sweltering heat. And I did that for a few weeks. My family was like, "What the hell are you doing? You know, like go, you know, do something pro- like real and productive." I, w- I was schlepping flur- uh, furs and playing cards with them. So this was, a, you know, it, I, I I I worked on Space Camp the following summer in Lessons Zero. I knew I wanted to to get into the business somehow and started getting some practical experience before graduating college. Well, upon graduating college, uh, your first job was working as an assistant to director Paul Brickman on the movie Men Don't Leave. Paul, from what I understand, is a director who doesn't really like the viability and has some discomfort with the attention that Hollywood gave him following uh, Risky Business. Um, How was your experience working with him? Paul was the greatest. I mean, for for me coming out of school, I graduated school and then I was on, you know, I went pretty directly to uh, Chicago and it was my first experience working on location. John Avnet, the producer, was the producer of Less Than Zero. And I stayed in touch with him while I was at school. And he said, well, what are you going to do when you graduate? And I said, I don't know, get a job, do something, you know, keep trying to gain experience. And, and he, you know, we kept in touch and the timing worked out great that uh, they were going to be in Chicago. And then we went to Baltimore later to shoot Men Don't Leave. And he offered me a job as Paul's assistant. And Paul couldn't have been easier for me to work for. I mean, I think he was uncomfortable having an, an assistant, truthfully. The, the most he ever asked me to do was go, go to the fridge and get him a Coke. I, I mean, there was very little that Paul asked of me. So I got to sit and observe and, and move around with very little you know, responsibility. I, I mean, it was kind of a dream job at the time. I think I played more basketball with Paul and John Abnett and Chris O'Donnell. We set up a hoop and in between takes, you know, we, we would, we would play ball while they were uh, lighting. I mean, it was, it was, it was an easy gig, but, but it was, but it was great in so many ways for me to be on location and get that experience and start to finish. Uh, this was the first experience I had start to finish and, and that moved into post-production you know, we got back to LA after shooting, John kept me on the team and I was able to see the movie all the way through to finish. And that was my first, you know, post-production experience. And um, obviously that later, uh, that shaped what I'm doing uh, to this day. Well, actually in kind of working through the business, especially getting into the post-production, you kind of soon ended up at Joel Silver Productions. Uh, working on such movies as Ricochet, directed by a good friend, Russell Mulcahy. Hi, Russell. Yes. Uh, hi, Russell. <laughs> so right around the time when Silver Productions was, it was kind of the big company in town for action movies, such as uh, The Last Boy Scout uh, that had come out around that time as well, which you also worked on. 
And how did the, this kind of relationship with um, Joel Silver come around? Was Joel a fan of uh, previous Mirish movies growing up and, and kind of made that connection? Well, I actually met Joel through my incredible stepfather, Leonard Goldberg, who was a, quite a successful producer yeah. um, growing up. When we talk about my exposure to the business, um, I got more exposure to the business through Leonard who I would go visit at 20th Century Fox. Uh, he was partners with Aaron Spelling during that time, and they were making you know, a lot of seminal TV shows uh, like The Rookies, SWAT, and Charlie's Angels, and Fantasy Island, and TJ Hooker, and, and Family, and Starsky and Hutch. So when I was a younger kid, I was on you know, the set's, uh, at Fox quite a bit. It was it was kind of near my school. I'd go visit him. I mean, it was the greatest times. I They had a golf cart and, and, and all I ever wanted to do was, you know, ride the golf cart and dri- and they let me drive <laughs> the golf cart at a young age around the, um, the studio lot. And his bungalow and Aaron's bungalow was right next to the MASH set. So I would sneak onto the MASH set and I wasn't even watching MASH at the time, but just like, oh, something to do and, and being sneaky about it. And, and Leonard is a wonderful man. And he then became president of 20th Century Fox, I think in 88 or 89, right around that time. And he, he was at Fox when Joel Silver made Die Hard. And, you know, there's a there's a famous story about, you know, how much money they paid Bruce Willis at the time to a star in Die Hard. And he was just a TV actor. So mm. I think they paid him five yeah. or six million dollars at the time. And <laughs> yes, crap load of money. So I think Joel, Joel was forever in debt to Leonard. And, and look, Leonard has a storied history. He's an episode and, and, and a whole long conversation in himself with, with what he did and achieved. But when I was, you know, 16 or 17, um, I was a huge Eddie Murphy fan. Eddie had done 48 Hours, and um, I think he had been on SNL. And Paramount had signed him to a three-picture deal. And I saw at the house an invitation came to the house to invite Leonard and my mom to this party that Paramount was throwing in at the Hard Rock Cafe. And it was, you know, it was a giant envelope that opened into basically a one sheet uh, that had a caricature of Eddie holding the world above his head with that famous smile. And I said to them, you guys got to take me. Like, I got to go meet Eddie Murphy. That's all I cared about. I wanted to meet Eddie Murphy. And they graciously agreed. And so I was really nervous. We went to the, to the Hard Rock Cafe. It was, it was packed. And at that time, I mean, you know, Andrew, you're a big guy. I'm a little guy. I'm on the opposite <laughs> end of the spectrum. And, 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 and at that time, I, I look, I wasn't even five feet tall. Uh, I was, you know, this tiny little dude. And I'm like, there's no way I'm going to find him. Like, how am I going to meet him? Where, where, you know, like there's this sea of people. And I was really, I I wasn't sure it was going to happen. This is all I cared about. And Joel came over to Leonard and just to say hello. And Leonard said, Joel, you know, Richie really wants to meet Eddie. 
I mean, that was it. Before he even finished his sentence, Joel had grabbed me by the arm and <laughs> like pushed through, streamed through people, like kind of put, put moving them aside. You know, I was just sort of being pulled in a blur. And he threw me right in front of Eddie. Eddie was like <laughs> sitting on a bar stool holding court. People were all around him. And, and there I was. And I was looking up at him, you know, very cinematic, you know. And Joel, Joel says, Eddie, Eddie, this is Richie Mirish. Richie Mirish, this is Eddie. Say hi. And, you know, I kind of dumbfoundedly looked up and went, hi. You know, I could barely get high out. And Eddie looked down at me. He stuck his hand out. And I kind of sort of got my hand up there. And he starts shaking my hand. I mean, it, it was as limp as could be. And he grabs my hand really tight. He grabs my hand really tight and starts shaking it. He starts shaking it hard. He's like, come on, man, give me a real handshake. Give me a real handshake. Grab that hand. Grab it. Grab it. You know, and I'm like, I'm grabbing it. Now I'm like wrestling with Eddie Murphy. You know, and I'm I, like, he's smiling and laughing. And, you know, and I'm just staring up like starstruck. And... He lets go of my hand and he kind of smiles, you know, basically saying, okay, goodbye. And I just stand there and Joel, you know, Joel, it was like a beat later and Joel looks at me and he says, okay, are you good? And I went, yeah. And he grabs me by the arm <laughs> and pulls me back. And I, you know, and I'm looking back and, and, and Eddie kind of looked at me and pointed and then, you know, the wall of people closed up. And Joel's pulling me through the people, throws me back in front of Leonard and said, we're good. We're good. And, <laughs> and that was it. You know, that, that was my introduction to Joel and to Eddie. And later on, when I was in need of a gig, I met Joel. He was shooting Boy Scout at the Coliseum. And, I, and he, I don't know, he asked me to, to come down. It was really late. It was, may have been like midnight you know, is when he wanted to meet me. And I, I went into his trailer. I sat down. Again, you know, scores of people and act beehive of activity in his trailer. And he basically didn't interview me. He just said, so how are you? I'm good. I said, I'm good. Okay, I'm doing this movie, Ricochet. I need someone to do post. You're it. Okay. And I went, okay. And he went, all right, I'll see you later. I'll call you. I'll call you. And, and that was it, you know. And, and I started, uh, I, I, you know, I went to work on Ricochet for him and stayed with Joel, you know, on and off, mostly on for the next 20 plus years. I did movies with him. Well, this kind of opens up two other questions here, just from this. Uh, the first one is, uh, did you manage to re-meet up with Eddie Murphy when you were doing The Distinguished Gentleman? I did. I did. And, you know, Leonard produced that movie. It was, in a, again, in a gap. I was really lucky in my, you know, that I had a couple gaps in my workflow and Leonard was making Distinguished Gentleman. I wasn't working for Joel at that time. And he said, well, why don't you come and work on The Distinguished Gentleman, which I did. And it was cool. I think I told Eddie the story. I, I, he, of course, didn't remember <laughs> but he he laughed anyway. So we, we did that picture and I became pretty good friends with some of his entourage. There, there's um, his costumer is a terrific uh, gentleman named Fedorov Kolin, who I still speak to uh, now, a wonderful guy. And, and his group was, was really terrific. It was a fun movie to, to make a little more, uh, more of a lesser known Murphy picture, 
but Jonathan uh, Lynn directed that picture who had done Nuns on the Run. And that was, yeah. that, was a, mm. that was a fun picture to work on. All I can think of is I've heard stories about Joel Silver. Mm. And he's supposed to be a pretty big, imposing guy. So all I'm picturing right now is you saying that you're a ball of about five foot nothing. And this huge guy bulldozing his way through a crowd of people. Like some out of control super tanker just dragging you towards Eddie Murphy. I, I mean, there's no question Joel is a force of nature. And Joel you know, would wear these, you know, he, he was always wearing very colorful attire. It was like his suit of armor. And to backtrack for a beat, I, I didn't hear from, he said, okay, you'll work on this movie. And I didn't know what to do when he, when I went into the, to the trailer to, to finish off there. I, I don't know. I was like, is somebody going to call me? Do I go somewhere? I didn't ask any of those questions and none of them were answered. I think it was sometime later, several, maybe several weeks, a month or two later, where I got a call from Joel. This was the early days of cell phones and technology. There was no email. Um, and I, but I got a call from Joel, and it was on a Sunday afternoon, completely out of the blue. And Joel never starts conversations traditionally, like with hello or how are you? You know, it's more like, Richie, it's Joel. Just just get over to my house right now. You know, it was like that. And I'm like, um, but it's Sunday afternoon. I think I'm doing something. It didn't matter. You know, I mean, when Joel called, you know, you jumped. And I went to his house, not knowing what was going on. And I finally, he came into to the kitchen and he said, I need to get a fax. I want to get the grosses. This is how they got the gross. They, got, they were faxed the box office oh, yeah. grosses mm-hmm. at this time. And he said, I need you to set up a fax line for me and, uh, get, you know, get on that right now. Well, I said, okay. And I think he had a fax machine and he sort of directed me to where he wanted it set up. And in that, in that time, it wasn't as simple as just plugging the phone and giving the person the number. There was some connection that needed to be made. Uh, but I tried. I did what what I could as quickly as I could, and I couldn't get the fax machine to work. I called a certain number of people, and I, I don't know. I had to call the phone company to get set up, and it just wasn't going to happen, you know, in the time span that Joel wanted, which was right then and there. And I said to him, Joel, I, I you know, I have to call the phone company tomorrow. They're not working today, and you know, I'll get this set up for you tomorrow. Well, that was the wrong answer to give him. I had my first getting torched by Joel experience uh, right there and then. And, you know, Joel was standing above me. I mean, it's kind of like when I met Murphy, I was looking up in a godlike situation. I remember I was like, felt so small and I was looking up at Joel. I think he was standing on a step or something. And he started waving his arms like he was conducting and explaining to me, how, you know, in this business, you have to get things done immediately, and there are no excuses, and no is not an option. And, and I had said, Joel, I could go down to the, the Kinko. I know they had a fax machine. They could fax it to me, and I'll, I'll run down there and bring it back up to you so you can get the grosses. Now, I was trying to create options, but none of those options were satisfactory to him. And uh, I walked out of that house wondering if I would survive and you know how would I really do in this business maybe I've had it easy I've never 
you know, I mean, I'm working for now, you know, the biggest producer in Hollywood, and I can't even get a fax for him. Mind you, it was Sunday, and, um, you know, <laughs> I, the phone company wasn't going to make an, uh, an allotment for me. But, but I mean, again, it was, it was a real lesson. I mean, I, I, at the end of the day, I want to believe it wasn't about the facts. It was he was kind of te- teaching me about a work ethic and how he wanted things done and uh, or actually probably really just wanted the facts. Um, but just I took facts, a lot man. of I, I just the facts, man. I just I took a lot from that. And, you know, again, w- really was always on my toes whenever I would see Joel's name pop up on my phone. I would wait for a second before answering and and run through my head what was he calling about? And you better have an answer ready. You know, I got a little, a little nervous, you know, always a, a, a beat nervous. Like, is he going to fire me? Did I fuck up? You, you know, it was that my, my mind always went to what did I screw up, particularly in those early years, the later years, I felt more comfortable that I was on top of things and, 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 and getting the job done. It refers to two questions here. One is, uh, in respect to our good friend Russell and a question that we have constantly asked, the first question would be, when are we ever going to see Ricochet in its uh, proper aspect ratio? <laughs> and two, how accurate is that depiction of Joel Silver from True Romance? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Joel has been depicted in a lot of movies uh, loosely, very loose. I mean, you could, you want to see Joel watch Roger Rabbit. You know, oh, watch, yeah. Yeah, watch Roger Rabbit. I mean, that's Joel <laughs> directing Roger. And, and that's really, that's pretty accurate. I mean, Joel does not suffer fools lightly. Joel is incredibly charismatic. Joel is incredibly smart. I mean, post-production, I mean, you can't fool him. I mean, there, there are people, you know, who kind of BS their way through certain aspects of the process. And and you can never do that with Joel. He knows everybody's jobs so well. He knows the process. So you better give him an answer that is true and sound. And you should have uh, viable options ready. And again, early in my career, you know, I gave him the wrong answer a few times. And he straightened me out. And he gave me his point of view. And I learned. But I mean, I guess from True Romance, Saul Rubinek's portrayal. I mean, it's it's obviously way over the top. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, other than the you know the beard and and the the loose clothing and the the larger than life personality, those are the things that that are connected to Joel. I mean, Steve Martin did a rough vibe on him in Grand Canyon. Joel's you know at, of that time in that era was the preeminent producer and, you know, such an extroverted personality that, look, I think this was done on purpose. Movies were branded Joel Silver movies, you know, Mm -hmm. so just like actors, you saw his name and you knew what kind of experience you were going to get. And and I think that was done by design to great success um, when you look at the body of his work. Okay, but it still doesn't answer us. When are we getting the full version oh. of Ricochet? <laughs> yeah. You know what? Truthfully, I heard you guys ask Russell about that. I, I of course, I have absolutely no idea. Um, when I finish a movie, you know, I deliver the picture and I'm gone. I move on. I, I rarely look back. Every so often for the next year or so, I'll probably get an occasional call. Uh, from the studio about something. 
But when I deliver a picture, I'm out of there. So uh, in terms of the video aspect ratio and why they didn't go scope, who knows? I mean, it was in the early days, right? Early-ish days of where DVDs were exploding. The studio started realizing like, wait, we got something good here. There was no Netflix. There was no Amazon. The people were craving content to own. And why they didn't transfer the picture in its original format, I have no idea. I mean, probably saved somebody $20 and they said, okay, let's do it. Or nobody dug deep enough to to ask the question. And it's crazy that Russell wouldn't have been, you know, nowadays the directors and, and in post were involved with that process. We really weren't back in that time. I mean, now when they do all these HDR elements, we go in and and we hear the sound. There's so many formats. It's outrageous, though. I mean, you know, back then it was pretty simple. It was a stereo release and, and pictures were transferred via film. We weren't even in the digital age. And I think HBO financed that movie yeah, uh, and it was distributed through Warner's, and yeah, you know, I just think that it, somebody just didn't give a shit. Now it's a much bigger deal. I, I can't see that happening now. I mean, they put every format uh, under the sun, but you know, people aren't buying DVDs anymore. It's all now being done for for streaming and the home theater experience. I mean, yeah. laser discs, VHSs, DVDs. If you've got them, hold on to them because in 20 years that might pay for your kid's college education, like baseball trading cards. They are definitely becoming obsolete. Well, let's just rewind a little bit. Your first foray into producing was the incredibly popular Tales from the Crypt series. And this then led to you producing the second Crypt movie, Bordello of Blood, Uh, directed by Gilbert Adler, uh, a man which you would produce a number of horror-related features with in the 2000s. Now, I understand that the ending of the film was reconceptualized by yourself and the editor, Stephen Lovejoy. Now, was this due to poor screenings by uh, the public or notes from executives? What was it? No, no. I mean, truthfully, it was while we were shooting, quite honestly, I think. I mean, obviously, Gil and, um, and, and Alan Katz, who were the writers, they, we were all up in Vancouver shooting. And the ending that was scripted was being called into question while we were shooting. And as we were watching the picture evolved, I think the, the thought was we needed to do something different. And uh, Gil, who was a wonderful person and was busy directing the movie, I think kind of offhandedly said to Lovejoy and I, like, well, what are we going to do at the ending? We need to do something different. Uh, I got to go direct. You guys come up with something. And I think it was something like kind of like that where we, where we, Lovejoy and I, just started bullshitting ideas of what to do there. And I think Gil, Gil and Alan responded and, and that became what we ended up shooting. Gil was so sweet about it uh, that he let me direct some of the insert shooting. And so I, I remember Gil standing to the side and I'm like, you sure? Like, you know, you're the director of the film, like, you know, and he said, no, no, go for it, go for it. And got to, got to stand up and, and direct some of the insert shooting that, that was happening as, 
as that film was uh, was building towards its climax with the laser beam gear, you know, kicking into high gear and and Dennis Miller's foot moving the, you know, moving the pad, moving the knob on the pad. I remember really directing the the stunt man whose foot it was. Move your foot to the left. Go to the right a bit. No, no, no. Kick it harder. No, no. Kick it softer. <laughs> kick it up. No, kick it down. Like you know, I mean, I think I shot like a full mag of like a dude moving his foot. But if you watch the picture, there's a lot of cutbacks to it. We ended up we ended up using those shots along with seeing the the laser uh, ramp up. I got to do some of that stuff and it was a great experience uh, again being on location and it was a early experience for me being involved with visual effects the combination of practical effects then that were later um, done in post overseen by uh, John Van Vliet and his company Available Light and, and I mean it's so amazing to think I think we shot that picture in 95 and I think it came out in 96, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. And yeah. what we were doing, yeah, practically when we were blowing up the vampires. And there's a shot where they squirt water into Corey Feldman's face. And you see the, you know, you see the background, like it goes straight through his head. It's something Zemeckis would do, who was actually a producer on this picture, uh, in Death Becomes Her. And I remember shooting that and like trying to conceptualize how they would, how would we create this? It was seemed like such an, uh, an elaborate uh, visual effect. And, but, and to see it happen was really quite cool. And who knew later, a couple years later, I was working on The Matrix where we were really doing cutting edge stuff. And just a couple years earlier, just doing a simple composite was, you know, and doing it well was a bit challenging. And the visual effects world just exploded and exponentially in a short period of time went from simplicity to serious complexity. Well, exactly. And and this is kind of where uh, cinema begins to change. As in 1999, uh, you produced The Matrix. And this is the movie that changed Hollywood forever. I don't think there's any argument about that. And before we get into the whole VFX thing, this Hmm. It all started with a, a chance catch-up at a deli in Santa Monica. <laughs> is that right? It is true. Um, you know, again, I was working for Joel. And funnily, like, so I had done Ricochet and, and Boy Scout. And then a period of time passed. And, and I got a call to go to Vancouver to do a Bordello of Blood. And then Gil was going back to London to shoot the last uh, season of Crypt. So I, I oversaw that from L.A. And then... And then we did a series called Perversions of Science uh, for HBO, which lasted a year. And then, you know, I was kind of, a, in a, a, again, as happens after project to project, I've never been on any kind of contract of length for a studio or, even, or Joel in my, in my entire career. It's, it's always been gig to gig. And at that time, it was, you know, you worried, uh, you had to really make your money last and you had to budget carefully. I was a single guy at the time and basically enjoyed that existence because when I finished a picture, I knew I would have time off, but you just don't want the time to be, you know, so long. You'd like, it'd be perfect if I could have two months off and start the next gig so I could travel and decompress, but but things never really work out uh, exactly how you want them. But as, as I've said, I've been very 
fortunate that I that I I've been able to work continuously without a contract of any length. And this was during a down period of time, and and I was in down at the Santa Monica Mall with a couple friends having dinner at the Broadway Deli, and I saw Joel at another table, and I obviously I got up and walked over to just to say hello, and I. You know, again, as with Joel, there's no BS. There's no greetings and salutations like sit down and, you know, and have a piece of rye bread. It was Richie, 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 I I want you to go to Australia and work on this movie I'm doing. How do you feel about that? And I went, oh, okay, yeah. You know, what are you doing? Are you free? And I said, no, I'm free. And he said, oh, okay, come, come by my office in the next day or so and talk about it. And uh, I walked back to my table and I said, well, I just got a gig, uh, which is great. Uh, I guess I'm paying for dinner. And I, <laughs> and, and I think I'm going to Australia. I mean, okay. I don't know what I'm working on. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what it is. I don't know for how long. I, I got a copy of The Matrix, I, I, I think was either sent to my house or I picked it up because he wanted me to read it before coming in to see him. And I remember the first experience of reading The Matrix and really being, like, confused. I had no idea what the picture was about. I I couldn't visualize most of it. There were terms in there, like the white construct, and I, I would stop and really, you know, try and figure out what that meant and what it what what am I seeing and and it was really all way above my head and fortunately I mean I felt really stupid reading it and I I uh, I went in to see Joel and he's like did you read the script and I said Joel I got to be honest with you I I really don't I, I don't get it I don't I mean I mean it seems really cool but I I don't understand it and I Listen, I think Joel said, yeah, no one does. Neither do I. Don't worry about it. It's going to be great. It's going to be amazing. These, these two guys are geniuses, you know? And he, he, t- he just laughed. And he took me into this tiny little office. I mean, he opened the door to this tiny office. And the Wachowskis were in there. And he said, hey, Hey guys, this is Richie. You know, it was always Richie. I think that's in Hollywood. All my years working with with Joel, everybody called me Richie because Joel called me Richie. And until this podcast, I've never admitted that I really didn't want to be called Richie. But I was <laughs> never gonna. I was never gonna tell Joel you can't call me Richie. You know, like so. It just consequently, everybody who worked in our area was Richie. I mean, the people then that started working for me, I said finally, like, it's Richard. You know, like, call me Richard. Or, oh, is it, what, what, what about Dick? Can we call you Dick? No, 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 no. Richard is good. Richard is good. But, um, you know, he said, this is Richie. He's going to go go down and he'll be in Australia. You'll see him down there just so you recognize him and and uh, there it is. And they barely were able to turn and acknowledge me and kind of went, okay. And that was it. You know, I like, closed the door. And, and that was my introduction to the Wachowskis. And uh, it was a short period of time later that I found myself down in, in Sydney for the first time uh, in pre-production. Whoa, 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 whoa. Right there. This is the interview police. We are stopping this 
well that screech should have come a bit sooner but that's fine i'll remember where the handbrake is right (laughs) the interview is so large and we apologize for all these people who have been tuning in to hear the matrix that we've kind of just give you this tiny little bit of the tip there the little tease Uh, the tease and the rest will come next week yes this is our first two-parter that we have ever done but all of this stuff, as you can agree from what you've heard from Richard so far, is absolutely amazing. And it only gets better. Trust yes, me. Yes, it does. On next week's. So, you're just going to have to tune in next week. But in the meantime, we decided, well, seeing as though this is kind of a buffer week, and Richard has done a nominate five, uh, but we're going to include that next week. So, I guess we're going to have to come up with a compromise this week. Yes. Uh, this week, it's going to be Andy's turn. To nominate five. Oh shit. Now's the time to nominate five. Nominate five. Yes, nominate five. You've right led me up the garden path on this one. This was not the idea. <laughs> this is revenge for last week, right, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Pure and simple. Shit. Yeah. Because last week, if you didn't tune in, Andy basically dropped me into the deep end and said, right, you need to come up with a nominate five for this week. And so we pulled out that uh, video game list out of the bag because I'm a massive gamer. And what better thing to talk about than video game movies? Now, this time around, I wanted Andy to come up with a nominate five. And I think the best thing that we could possibly have done is to nominate the top five movies that have influenced you as a filmmaker and writer. Ooh, all right, all right. That's not easy. Not easy, but you have constantly taught me a lot about movies and movie making, and you've been able to point me in the direction of some really interesting films over the past 17 weeks. So I want to know from you, which are the ones which make you tick? Wow, okay. Um, that's that's so loaded. That's so loaded because it's really hard to break into five. Um, uh, I'm going to do them in a random order. Is, oh, for God. God's sake! No, 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 my dear boy. You, well, you co- think of them you, on the spot. You co-host the show. You have to have them in some kind of order. <sighs> yeah, I didn't know I was doing this today. I didn't know I was doing that last week. Get used to it. Oh, God. Okay, so it's going to be... Right, five. Five going downwards, right? Five going down. Five to one. Five to one. Okay. Uh, All right. So, as a number five... Yep. um, Okay, easy. I'm going to start with Michael Mann's 1981 movie, Thief. Okay. No, I was going to say that that was the one which uh, inspired Heat, but that was L.A. Takedown, wasn't it? Yes, L.A. Takedown, yeah. also known as Made in L.A. in some circles, uh, was a TV movie that basically became, uh, it was remade as Heat. All right, then, so what is Thief all about, then? Well, it's about a thief, a professional safecracker who's played by James Kahn, Jimmy Kahn, mm-hmm. Sonny, and... Uh, <laughs> Look how they massacred my boy. <laughs> well, this is actually uh, was Michael Mann's first movie. This was um, 
I wouldn't say low budget, but compared to some of the stuff that Michael Mann has done in later years, it is. I mean, this is like before Miami Vice. So this was him really cutting his teeth. It is just a phenomenal movie. Beautiful, amazing electro score by Tangerine Dream. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so even prior to Street Hawk, Tangerine Dream was uh, did this score, which is just phenomenal. And Thief... I saw at a very early age, I think it was on BBC One one night, way, way back. Uh, I'd, I'd even say it was somewhere like 86 or something like that. And there was something about it I just loved. When I kind of got into filmmaking, I always had envisioned uh, this movie, the, its style, uh, the performances, uh, the way it was written. And particularly there is this absolutely amazing scene between James Kahn and Tuesday Weld who plays like his girlfriend in it. They have this scene set in a diner that is about 10 minutes long and mm-hmm. they are just they're just talking but it is so engrossing because they ad-libbed the entire thing. No, really? And, yes, and I believe it was all done in one. And basically so I think Michael Mann was just gave them all right, here's what you've got to achieve by the end of the scene is the kind of things you've got to drop in. And these two phenomenal actors just really delivered on this scene. And I've always wanted to pay homage to that. And in the movie that I am looking to hopefully shoot very soon, which we'll hear about at a later episode, I paid homage to that scene with two of the main characters in it by writing this really well-written, by my standards, restaurant scene. It it was a, a major selling point of this project that... It was the turning point for this movie. And uh, yeah, Michael Mann's Thief, I will put out there as definitely in my top five. Okay, then. So that's. It's in the box, Steve. Ah, it's in the box. Well, why does that not surprise me? Everything's in the box. Uh, But what is number four? Oh, number four. Um, Okay, I'm going to go number four. I am going to go with more of an arty movie. And it is. Koyanis Katsi. Ah, now I haven't seen it, but I am aware of it. Puts it in the box. Yes. Um, basically, this is a movie that was um, it was presented by Francis Ford Coppola. I saw this movie at a friend's house. A friend introduced me to this in the late nineties, I believe. Uh, they just got it on DVD because it was released, and we watched it round at his house, and I was just absolutely engaged. And this is a movie that it does not use your typical storytelling techniques. It doesn't have actors in it. It doesn't have dialogue. It's basically, you know, moving photography. That this guy has gone out and, and recorded all this footage of all these amazing images around the world and put it together to create this message story, right, of, of how Earth has kind of evolved and changed and, and kind of where we were going with the space race and stuff like that. And it's all set to this iconic score by Philip Glass, who doesn't do a lot of movie scores. Uh, It's very rare when he does. But it's so iconic, it's been used in a lot of commercials and things like that. It was even used in Watchmen when they were filming the Dr. Manhattan story. The music in the background was from Koyanis Kadzi, from Philip Glass's score. Yeah. Yeah, no, I was aware of the Philip Glass um, angle. He also used some of that in GTA 4. And uh, I think it was the same piece. Kind of reminds me that in terms of the music of the the music that they used in Demolition Man, 
Yeah, a little bit. Because it's the way it beats. But uh, for what I gather, Koya's Katsi means something like world out of harmony or something like that, doesn't it? Life out of balance. Life out of balance. That's what it means. Yeah, very close. My first movie that I did in film school uh, was inspired by Koyana's Katsi. And I remember when I screened it uh, for the tutors there, the people who were marking me, they just said, this is film festival ready. And that was the first thing I ever shot. And I filmed it basically in a field with one camera, no crew and no dialogue or anything. And it was it was very arty short film called The Wire. I don't think it's available anywhere. I think I've got the only copy of it. That majorly opened my eyes to, okay, I know that I can do this. And I, I have a vision. And that, as a director, you just want one person to kind of really appreciate the work that you do. Over lockdown this past year, when we had no projects going and, mm-hmm. and nothing was happening, uh, me and Neil, our composer. You're right, Neil. All right, Neil. Uh, I had an idea to go out and uh, shoot all of footage of Manchester during lockdown when no one was out. All of the streets of Manchester City Centre were empty and desolate. I just had the idea, I want to do something based around lockdown that is a throwback to Koyanis Katsi and that kind of message that they gave, which I'm still editing. So yes, Koyanis Katsi, I, I would put that up there as one of my most informa- um, influential. All right, well, these are some good choices already because I have heard Guyana's Katsi held in high regard, but what is going to be number three? Uh, number three, I know you have seen this uh, because I took you to see it. <laughs> Once again, we're going to go to with Michael Mann to Heat. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Heat is it's the movie that completely changed my focus on movies. I went to see this in the theatres in 95 on my own. Because no one else was interested in going and seeing it. And I was like, oh, I want to see it. So I'm going to go and watch it. And I knew that it had been made as a LA takedown. Made in LA. Whatever. And I I wanted to see this kind of pairing of Pacino and De Niro for starters. And I was a huge Michael Mann fan by that point anyway. I walked out of seeing that movie completely changed. It, it's, it's extremely hard to explain this profound effect this movie had on me. Because it was so patient and so well done, so well cast, so well shot. Everyone will say um, the table scene between De Niro and Pacino, you know, is, is what makes that movie. It's not. There's so many elements that make that movie. And it's inspired in my writing as well. I think that's what really changed my focus of writing from something like Reservoir Dogs and write all cool and hip stuff to actually writing something so much more realistic, you mm. know, and in the moment and breathing that moment and not trying to force the dialogue to create a moment. There's there's a very big difference. I know some writers will really relate to that. With Heat, it was just phenomenal. And it still is. I watch it every single year. And when it was being shown at the, the Dean's Gate... Yep, the, the AMC there, cinema there, yeah. And... As soon as I saw it was going on the big screen, it was like, I've got to do this again. And I know that my co-host here, Steve, has not seen it. No, you, you, you took me along and uh, no, I really enjoyed it. I, I think there's a, a few bits in the movie which don't 
quite work as well as they should do. Uh, it's a little bit long, but what is in there is a really, really solid crime drama, which doesn't dwell so much on the, the crime as it does the, the characters and the relationships between them. And well, it's also got a really good score as well, which is massively evocative. Elliot Goldenthal. Yeah. yeah. And it, it looks incredible as well. Yeah, it's just a magical movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it does it for me every time. It, if I ever come across somebody who says that they've not seen it, it, it's always such a shock to me because I think it should be right up there with stuff like uh, The Godfather and Star Wars and stuff like that as stuff that everybody should see. Mm. And I was amazed when uh, I met a um, fellow writer called Ed Newmeyer who wrote Robocop, Starship Troopers, etc., and when we sat down and he asked me what you know my favorite movie was and I told him he I realized it was his favorite movie as well and he said that is the best film school you can go to is watching that movie yeah and i can i can tell having read some of your work cuz i've i've read uh, i've read a couple of your scripts over the years you can see little elements here and there that uh, might have appeared in uh, in heat in your writing it's definitely one of those which is which has uh, influenced you without a doubt yes it is um so that that's uh, number 3 i don't know if it should be placed higher but straight off the top of my head what came into my head is heat I'm actually surprised that it hasn't placed higher. So that means that number two and number one have got to be absolute barnstormers. So what is going to be number two? <laughs> well, like I said, I didn't have time to organise these into any kind of order. So this one might be a major come down. Um, for it's some guest people. house paradiso. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's number six. All right, um, okay. I'm going to do a bill and add that one in. Um, no, um... I think for number two, I'm going to throw one out of left field, and it's a movie that I have to seriously defend my love of. And one of our previous guests, Jay Oliva, is like, how the hell do you love this film so much? I've basically got to say that 1997's Antoine Fuqua movie, The Replacement Killers. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do I believe it deserves to be placed above heat? No, but it's kind of the way it's just fell at this moment. Uh, but I'll explain why. I went to the cinemas to see this on what I believed was National Cinema Day. I went to see this and Deep Impact. I think, obviously, Replacement Killers was the better movie. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, it's no Armageddon. Replacement Killers, the version that came out theatrically, is very bare bones. It's a very vanilla action flick, but incredibly stylish. I'm going to go for the extended version here, which has a lot more of the storyline and the characterization put back into it, especially when it comes to Mira Sorvino's character. With this movie, it was I was so excited because it was Chow Yun-Fat's first American movie. And I am the biggest Chow Yun-Fat mark on the planet. I, I, I've got to be, because he is just an amazing presence on screen. And he's the one person I would f- tumble over everyone to work with. And this movie... As soon as it opened, that opening scene with the Crystal Method music over the main titles, it was style like I could not believe. And yeah, I think it still holds one of the records for the most amount of bullets fired in any movie. (laughs) American movie, I believe. It's probably been overdone by something like John Wick or something now. 
Probably not, actually, because there's not that many shots fired in John Wick. It's not like the Expendables, where you've got people with belt-fed machine guns just firing blazingly. Um, But there's two things that I do remember about the replacement killers. One is that when I was in college, around about the same time, there was a like almost like a very early viral marketing campaign where you could go onto the website and it would send an email to whoever it was that you wanted to send an email to, where it was kind of set up as if it was a warning saying that you were going to get assassinated. And I don't know how long that lasted, but that was a bit worrisome. And the other thing is, I came round to yours one night, and we were having a few drinks and everything, and you put this on, but it was fairly late in the night, and I was a bit smashed. So yes. I have I have got little to no recollection of this movie, even though I sat next to you on the couch and watched it with you. Yeah, but you really enjoyed it. Yeah, you know, and then obviously you were so smashed you couldn't remember it and say, I think I've got to watch it again because I can't remember. But at the time, yeah. you were loving it. Yeah, and uh, no, it's it's just it's a very special movie for myself. And I know Jay says, oh, you know the action sequences in that. Fine. It's from the 90s when the action sequences were a lot different than action sequences are nowadays. Okay, mm. And I think we thank The Matrix for that. Because The Matrix, suddenly it all became gun-fu, unrealistic um, fighting techniques which worked for The Matrix, but now it's in everything. And now people are just doing hurricane ranas <laughs> in fight scenes. And uh, doesn't that piss you off? Oh... Uh, <laughs> To be honest, a lot of, I, lot of fighting, a lot of fights in uh, movies these days just kind of all blur into one. There's nothing that yeah. really makes a lot of them stand out. I like just the good old days when a fight scene would be someone coming up and punching someone so hard in the face just once. That there's more effect in that than there is to suddenly whipping out all of these fancy martial arts moves and then wrapping your legs around someone's head and then flipping them to the floor in a wrestling move that they're trying to play off as you get taught in an international spy school. You don't. You go to Mexico for that. No. And learn a bit of Lucha Libre. (laughs) No, that wasn't what I was thinking. (laughs) (laughs) In some schools. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Okay, well. Clothes are optional. (laughs) I know that one is close to your heart as well. Um, So there's two that I know that are really, really close to your heart, and there's a couple of surprises there. But what is going to be number one? Okay. Uh, number one, it has to be the movie that turned me on to wanting to make movies at a very young age. Can you guess what it is? Deep Throat. <laughs> no. I already made them movies. Hey! <laughs> no, it was Blade Runner. Ah, yes. So I am actually going to go with Blade Runner Final Cut. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was the original Blade Runner with the voiceover that was the movie that kind of ushered me into this amazing world and business and art form. I had only seen the last 20 minutes of it on an old VHS tape that someone had recorded over Blade Runner for Stand By Me. (laughs) But they could have been a Stephen King fan. It could have been. could have been, but it's like, wow. I love Stand By Me, but Blade Runner would win every time. But uh, I saw the, the end of this movie with the whole chasing around the Bradbury building, you know, and the end, tears in rain stuff. And at a very young age, something just clicked. And I thought, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. You know, this is just so amazing that I just 
want to do something like this. I want to make movies. I want to tell stories and that you know can resonate with even someone at a really young age, like I was. You know, Blade Runner was that movie, and then I finally saw it because this is hilarious. I had ten pounds that I gave to a family member, and they're like, "We're going to the shops downtown. Do you want us to get anything?" And I was like, yeah, I want you to get that um, science fiction movie. Um, and I didn't know the name of it at the time, but I wanted them to buy a VHS copy of this movie. And they went down and bought a VHS of what I they believed I was talking about. And I look back now thinking, what the hell did I tell them? Because they came back with a VHS copy of Flesh Gordon, which no f***ing child should ever be given. <laughs> oh, God. And I think I was telling them something about, oh, yeah, and it ends with this fight on this rooftop and stuff like that. And for some strange reason, that resulted in getting Flesh Gordon. So your parents thought what you really, really wanted was a softcore sci-fi porno. (laughs) It's very concerning. I didn't watch it. It went straight back and it ended up getting the movie. But I still remember to this day getting this movie. It's like, what the f*** is this? Penisaurus? What? And strange is they didn't question it, but um, no, Blade Runner over the years it's had so many different releases. You know the the terrible director's cut, and then obviously Gillian worked on the final cut, which is a masterpiece. Yeah, and this is why I mean I've got so much love for Gillian, and I know she's listening. Hi, Gillian, got so much love for you. You know that uh, that she has been responsible. You know in editing. This Bible of mine, you know, this this movie that has stayed with me for my entire life, for you know Gillian to work with me now on stuff, it's it's just the ultimate kind of dream come true. Um, but Blade Runner, I've I've got to put that right up there at the top. I think. Well, I can kind of agree with you. I was a little bit older when I first saw it. I think it was on TV around about nineteen nineteen ninety one, something like that. And I was watching it at my aunt's house with my mum because we were there babysitting. And I was just blown away by it. There was loads of stuff in there that I didn't get, but the visuals were just stunning. And then later on, you get a bit older and you start to appreciate the movie for exactly what it is. It's this wonderful visual masterpiece of imagination and filmmaking that deserves, deserves it to be as praised as it is and i know there's i've got a few friends who have said oh, you need to watch blade runner and they've seen it and they thought oh it's a bit boring but i think personally it's it's a phenomenal film and yeah the uh, the final cut is the best one to actually watch yeah i cannot say enough good things about that movie uh, and i know that you're a big fan of the second one i'm less so i think it's way too long i think it looks fantastic and they did a great job making a sequel to a movie that didn't need a sequel but personally i think it's way too long no i mean for people like me i mean i i do like a film that is long i can stand a three-hour movie as long as i like it the the only movie that i can honestly clear a schedule for is the full uncut version of once upon a time in america because it is just a phenomenal movie um but other than that two and a half hours is comfortable time for me because I love when they're filling it with character and actually giving you a reason to really like these characters. Blade Runner 2049 for me had an amazingly profound effect on me when I went to see it. That it's the first movie I have come out of the theatre after seeing it 
And actually, I had tears. And to actually see a movie that is so loving to that original movie, mm. when you get so many sequels that just destroy them. But this was such a labour of love towards that first movie. I remember sat in the audience watching it, and the first 10 minutes or so with the bit with uh, Dave Batista. Um, yes. and his little farm and everything. I'm sat there thinking, I've seen this before. And then I remember that a couple of days earlier... I'd the Dangerous Days documentary. The, yeah, I'd be watching yeah. the Dangerous Days documentary. And at the partway in there, they, they say that that was originally going to be the original opening of Blade Runner. And so they just lopped it out again, and they, all of a sudden it clicked. But, uh, but yeah, right. No, those are some great choices. And I'm actually surprised that I've seen more than one of them. To be yeah. honest. <laughs> well, to be honest, out of those three, two of them I'd introduced you to, and the yep. other two I've yet to introduce you to. That's true. And one of them I can't remember. Exactly. Uh, well, now the tables have been turned on you, so I think we're both about even for... Ooh, that, was, uh... that was painless. Phew, thank God for that. <laughs> Don't do too much of that shit, though. No. <laughs> I'll no. expect it. Well, it's just because of uh, all the pain that you put me through whenever we ask what's in the box 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 very good thank you very good indeed quite pleased with that uh, segue myself this is something that I had prepared for so uh, I guess I've got a rummage in the box. You better let everyone know what we're doing. Okay, well, what's in the box is the part of the show where Andy tries to improve my cinematic education and get me away from movies which have loads of car chases and also video games. That's playing video games, not movies that have video games in them. Uh, he's going to pull out a name of a movie which he certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, and then if I haven't seen it, I have to go away and watch it the night before we record our next episode. If I have seen it, then we keep picking out names of films until we find one that I haven't seen. Our record so far is two. Yes. So if we go past that, it'll be pretty impressive. First one. I have pulled out for this week is, uh, I think you may have seen this when we were doing the other podcast, The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford. Yes, I did watch that because this was an aborted attempt to actually get Poddywood off the ground uh, about two years ago. About that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So no, I've seen that one. Okay. Back in the box. 1979's The Wanderers. I have not seen that. Beautiful. Oh, you'll like it. It's all about uh, gangs and fights and Ken Worrell and Karen Allen from uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, right. No, it's good. It's all about uh, street gangs in the 50s. So I remember it came out around the same time as The Warriors, which I'm sure you have seen. Or if you haven't, that's going in the box. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes. uh, I played the game, but that's about as far as I go. Oh, well, yeah, it would be a surprise for you when you do watch the movie then. But yes, uh, The Wanderers, uh, that's a really good film, actually. That was among the first ever VHSs I bought in a collection. Wow. Um, from the video collection, which uh, was a video label here in the UK that is synonymous with their tapes getting chewed up in machines. Was there any particular reason behind that? I, I don't know if they were extremely cheaply made. 
or what, but all of the video collection tapes that I've ever known would react badly in a VHS and start eating the tape. Huh. If anyone else has suffered that with video collection releases in their youth, let us know. Yes. Right, so that's one thing to take away until next week. And I guess that's it for this week, isn't it? Yes. Join us uh, next week where we will have the second part of Richard Mirisch's just phenomenal recording where we talk about uh, The Matrix, uh, Godzilla vs. Kong. We finally get the truth behind the House of Wax set fire and uh, as well as other stories. We've just got to make sure that Richard Mirisch and Herb Gaines do not listen at the same time. No. (laughs) Otherwise, there will be trouble. Trouble. But yes, thank you for tuning in this week. We really look forward to you joining us next week. Let us know all of your thoughts on all our social media channels. Get in touch with us. We want to hear what you enjoy, what you like, and uh, give us some talking points. Yeah, you can get in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter at Pottywood. You can follow us on the Reddit subreddit at r slash Pottywood. And we're now available on all decent podcast apps, including Audible. So there's no excuse. Yes, you can find us. Just search for us. Until next time, bye. Something hilarious. Like a fart. <laughs>